How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Very nice, Mark. Very, very nice. Um, so, how's the week been for you? Amazing. Epic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an epic week. Why? It's I, I mean, been an amazing week because I, I got a little closer to heaven this week. How is that? I got up into the mountains. Uh, I'm so delighted to have our, our next guest here on the Dr. Joe Show. Tom, can you int- introduce our guest, please? She was an academic psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for more than 23 years. She's a graduate of Brown University and author of The Anatomy of Grief. Welcome, Dorothy Hollinger. Welcome, hello. Dorothy. Hello. Hello, Joe. Hello, Tom. Hello, Mark. Hello, hello. Hi. So, you know, we got a chance um, to talk a little bit uh, about grief in a, another show during COVID. But I'm fascinated by this, The Anatomy of Grief. How, can you tell us about the book? How did you come up with the title, The Anatomy of Grief? Well, which what will I start with first? Um, the anatomy, well, obviously people know what grief is, but why we called it anatomy is I talk about the structure of grief throughout the book in very many different ways. And what it's about, it's about what happens to the human self. And what I mean by when it's when grief comes into your life, when you lose a loved one, And what I mean by that is the brain gets grief-stricken. You can't think clearly. It's hard to remember things. The heart is hurting. Um, The metaphorical heart, people will say, I have a hole in my heart. My heart hurts. Also biologically, there's something that actually can happen. It's very rare, but it's called broken heart syndrome, which is also called... The formal name, the medical name, is Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Hmm. And the third part of this is how the body hurts. The body just, you know, yearns for the loved one. And this is, um, this is grief. And grief is also, if you would look at what, how you could define it, well, simply put, it's the intense sorrow that we feel after a loved one dies. But broadly put, if you think about it, you know, Darwin Darwin said grief is universal. And it is. It cuts across species. And it's also timeless. Uh, It can go back... Well, I talk about this in the book. I write about it. It can go back millions and millions of years. And there's... um, there's an unpredictability to grief. Let me back up just a minute. This happens to everyone at some point of their life. Um, and 
one doesn't know how long it's going to last. Um, it has its own timetable for everyone, actually. And grief belongs to the griever. No one can tell the bereaved, you know, it's, it's about time. Don't you think it's about time that um, you just moved on? That's just not fair and it's not appropriate. The griever owns their own grief. And another part of this is um, that grief with grief, which is a crisis, actually, when somebody dies, this can create growth. Um, this can help with a transformation. Um, all of us change. And in the depth of all this sorrow, there can be great change. And, you know, if you think about hardship or something difficult, just think about learning um, learning a subject. Uh, you know, you've got a new textbook, a new course you're into, and, oh, looks awful. How can I do this? What you, but you do, and what you're learning is how to tolerate discomfort. And mm. think of somebody who's um, a runner or a tennis player. I mean, they don't say, I'm not going to do this because it hurts too much. Well, it's the same in some ways for grief. Um, to be able to endure it, to experience it, to allow it, that's what helps it quiet. And it does quiet eventually. Um, but part of its unpredictability is that it can erupt at any time. Amazingly, um, for example, I tell, I tell the example of somebody going to a movie and seeing um, one of the actors it kind of reminds her or him of the father that has died and, well, I'll make it the woman. And she comes outside and all of a sudden she simply bursts into tears and, and not knowing where, where did this come from, but sitting down and realizing that Oh, that man re really reminded me of my father. And you know what? It's going to be the anniversary of his death next week. And of course, I'm more sensitive to it. So this is part of um, what grief is. And another, par uh, another characteristic of it is it depends on the relationship the bereaved had with the loved one. And it also depends on the bereaved, what their attachment history was. Uh, was it a secure attachment? Were they able to tolerate separations, absences from their mom or the caretaker? That all contributes to what kind of grief uh, someone can feel. And this can segue into what I'd like to talk about, which is the forms of grief. In my second chapter in The Anatomy of Grief, I write about the different forms that grief can take. And this is, I see grief like this, not in five stages, um, which don't work at all. Yeah. The, the Kubler-Ross thing doesn't work, the five stages? Well, oh, no. Uh, you really? know, where this came from with her was from her classic book that she wrote in 1969 on death and dying. Right. This is where stage theory and five stages came from. And what she did with this is explain, and she did a lot of research. It's a wonderful and classic book. 
this were the this was the emotional these were the emotional changes that somebody who's term, terminally ill faces before they're about to die mm. well you can't deny that death has happened um, this is one of the stages of um diet you can't um you can't really bargain for as as people who were terminally ill as this is one of the stages bargaining for their life well, you can't bargain that death doesn't happen because it did. And you can just go through all of these and they just don't make sense with grief. And But it, mm. it just came, it was in the American consciousness, well, since 1969 when she wrote that book. Um, and it was as though it just naturally fell into thinking about grief. But it's become a pop culture idea, really. Um, it simply doesn't work. And... I can't say that strongly enough. Um, Interesting. I mean, because how how can you bargain once you've already lost someone? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I see um, if I can, I think it might be helpful and interesting to talk about the forms of grief that I talk about in the book. I really list about, oh, I don't know, 16 or almost 20 of them. Wow. But I have to. I have to make clear, um, Joe, that these are not diagnostic disorders like in DSM, DSM-5, uh, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that the American Psychiatric Association publishes, and that one was 2013. No, right. and I, I am totally fine with that because I, I have a, you know, we talked about words matter before. Oh, I absolutely. Use, I don't use the word disorder at all. Ah. Disorder well, separates people into a group that's order, a group that isn't its stigma. But tell us about these different types of grief that human these beings forms. can experience. These forms. Well, um, and some of them, you already know, the public already knows, anticipatory grief. This is the grief that we experience when one is under the tr threat of death. Uh, a loved one is about to die or has a terminal illness or a kind of chronic debilitating finally terminal illness like parkinson's well you know we've all felt this anticipatory grief during covid and we've all as a nation felt that in the sense of how many more people are going to die mm -hmm. um and thankfully that death toll is going down but that's one of the forms of grief anticipatory and many of my patients have experienced that Another guys, one, let, me, let me just let me just chime in there sure the death toll is not going down. The rate is going down, but but the death toll will never go down. Well, true. That's true. That was a I, that I, Joe. And, and, that and, word and, that word was wrong. <laughs> but but I but, but I think I think that this is why your book is so important right now, uh, yeah. because we have a nation that yes. is grieving. Yes, um, absolutely. And so, tell me more. Tell me more. Well, you know, just, just to pick up on that, I wrote an op-ed piece, uh, February 22nd, it was published in The Hill, uh, Washington, D.C. publication, Great. and it came out the afternoon of um, President Biden's second memorial, over, you know, memorializing over 500 million people who had died of, the co of COVID, so, um, and, and in this the name of it is it's the collective grief we must face and i think it's five hundred thousand. what did i say 500 million that would you be... know you know joe i have to tell you my zeros have always been kind of mixed up that's all right 
It's all right. It's, it's, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you. But go on. Okay, so 500 million. What did I say again? That's what you said. It's yeah, 500 dollars. Say that again. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Okay, so why didn't I say half a million? Good. Well, okay, thank you. <laughs> anyway, another uh, form of grief is ambiguous grief. Um, Pauline can we, Boss. <clears throat> can we go back to the other one first? Which just one? Anticipatory? Yeah. Is, yeah. There a guilt, is there a guilt component to that? feeling that emotion you know, they, there could be yeah I, you know that's a wonderful question mark and the guilt would be attached to you know when a caretaker or relatives is taking care of somebody who is dying and it goes on and on and on and it can be really traumatic and they feel oh when is this going to be over when are they going to die and then they feel hideously hideously guilty about thinking that it's perfectly normal you know, there's exhaustion that come, that you feel after you've been doing this over and over, taking care of the loved one. And some of the times, given whatever they have um, in terms of an illness, there can be EMTs coming to the house because there's a sense, okay, I think they're dying now. And they, they call 911 and it it doesn't happen, and it ha and that can happen repeatedly. One mm. of my patients had such a response to um, hearing si sirens. It took a long time for after her husband died because there were so many times that the EMTs came to the house and took him to the hospital. So yes, um, one can feel guilt about this, and. It's important to understand, I think, for anyone who's grieving, that it's okay to have thought that. Um, and another, well, actually, this comes, to, there's just so much to talk about. But one of the um, things that happened has been happening during COVID that I've been so um, strongly re I respond to is what our frontline workers have been going yeah. through. I mean, they're the heroes in many ways in, of this COVID, that, this pandemic that we're living in and have lived through. But what they've gone through, being with patients who are dying and can't have their loved ones with them because of COVID and, and um, COVID patients die alone, just maybe saying a virtual goodbye on an iPhone or an iPad, this is awful. And those doctors, nurses, um, other people, clinicians who are in the hospital, they've gone through this over and over and over. And they've experienced their own trauma. And a, um, a colleague of mine has written about this, along with colleagues of hers, calling this vicarious trauma. Mm. And I think that's a very, very apt term for what they're experiencing. And, you know... We hope that they've been able to talk to, debrief with coworkers on the unit, uh, with friends, with family, and you know a lot of them um, could be helped by psychotherapy. But not everybody. Um, it just depends how one deals with that kind of experience. Does that answer your question, Mark? I went way off. No, absolutely. the The whole guilt component was was answered brilliantly. Dorothy, I think I think you you gave a lot of people a, a sense of relief that it's t perfectly normal to feel that way at the end of a long, long journey. Yeah.
Yeah. yeah. You know, another um, form of grief that we've been all experiencing uh, during COVID is ambiguous grief. I mean, how this was first come about as a term by Pauline Boss is this is experienced when a loved one goes missing and is considered um, dead, that they they had died, they presumed Mm -hmm. dead. And there's no closure for us because you don't, there's no body to bury. Well, that's happened in many ways um, from for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot because there's there hasn't been able to be traditional funerals. Mm. Uh, we haven't been able to come together in public to hold each other, to cry with each other, to um, just be with each other publicly to grieve. And also when you have, um, when you go to a wake or a sitting shiva or um, at a burial, there's a, a way to say goodbye. That's the last time on earth that you will be with the loved one, although now deceased. And it's an opportunity to say goodbye. We haven't been able to do that during COVID. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just been, you know, talk about words. You run out of words <laughs> to mm. be able to describe this, you know. And it, it speaks. It speaks, doesn't it, to this connection that we have with each other, um, and how each one of these examples you've given. It's really about how desperate human beings are. How critical connection is for us. Oh yeah. So how 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 do those go together? Our, our need for connection, the loss of connection, and grief. Well, uh, in the traditional funeral services, you were connected, um, and that you know that begins for the newly bereaved. That begins their their journey with grief, um, mm. but they begin it with being attached, being connected to people, um, people who have come to the funeral home um, to pay their respects, to say, I'm so sorry. Um, However, when that ends, um, meaning the people that you're with during that first time and the the after time or the after death time, that goes away and that... uh, Finally, that newly bereaved who becomes the bereaved, the griever, faces life alone. And that's one of the ways also that is so different. Grief is so different than uh, looking at it from five stages because facing death is profoundly different than facing life without the loved one for for the bereaved. And that's part of that... I mean, how that unfolds itself depends on the griever, um, on the connections they have, the support they have, the family they have. Um, it's, you know, the whole thing is just so individual. It's remarkable and wonderful, and yet um, you really can't put any kind of a template on it. And I think that's one of the important issues here. You can't squeeze it into a box or a formula. And you know, Joe, you met you mentioned a little while ago, how did you say it? Words 
what were you saying about words? Because I wanted words to matter. Add. Words yes, matter. Absolutely. And this is another uh, point that I stress in the book is to talk about your grief, to be able to talk about it. Um, because talking about negative emotions changes processing in the brain. It goes from the feeling brain, the amygdala, up to the thinking brain, which is in the prefrontal cortex. And it doesn't stop the negative emotion, but with grief, it will help the person tolerate it a little better. And for anybody with negative emotions, I mean, there's been some very nice research um, showing this. So I'm a, a big proponent of words because that's yeah. what we do, right? So, so I'm curious about this because now, now that you've brought in the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, which we talk yeah. about a lot. In the oh, do you? Oh, yeah, yeah. We talk about these things a lot. Um, I, I, I know that there are these different words that we use for the different types of grief but what yes. is the biology because because that must be relatively universal the do you talk about that the biology of grief what's actually happening in our bodies well you know it's a good question and i think one of the forms of grief that um is probably the most difficult form of grief it's called complicated grief um and this is uh, a very intense kind of grief that is actually relentless. The bereaved can't really let go of the intensity of what they're feeling. I'll get to the brain in a minute. The intensity of what they're feeling from almost from the day the loved one died. Intrusive thoughts happen. happen. They go back to mementos of the loved one, for example, photos of them or a husband can't take his wife's clothes out of the closet. And there's a, a study that was done um, some years ago by Mary Frances O'Connor. She was look. It was an fMRI study that looked um, a study of complicated grief uh, in women. There was a, a group of complicated grief women with complicated grief. And yeah, so uh, let me just interrupt for a minute. So, so fMRI for our listeners. Oh yes, sorry magnetic resonance imaging so we can actually take pictures of a brain as it's working and moving right go ahead and go ahead. yeah it's measure of blood flow which is an yes. indirect measure of neuronal activity so this right. was an fmri study of um women with complicated grief that was one group and uh, a group of women with non-complicated grief well the women with complicated grief when they were shown photos of their loved ones um, interspersed with photos, neutral ones, and the photos were paired with words from at the individual women's um, descriptions of their loved one. Hmm. So in other words, there was a loved one and a description that that person used to, to say that these were some of the words that I can't remember exactly how it went, but anyway, let me get to the main point. It's almost um, like they have, like, tag words. Well, um, I think what they were doing is they did an interview with them, and they took words right. from the interview. That's what they did. Right, and they, how they would describe their, their yeah, loved ones. exactly, yep. exactly. Got it. So anyway, so and what happened with uh, the fMRI is that a part of the brain that's called the nucleus accumbens was activated in the women with 
complicated grief. And this is a part of the brain, as you know, Joe, that is involved with satisfaction, like when you're hungry, you eat, or when you are thirsty, you drink. But it's also um, uh, the reward part of the brain. Um, so what happens, uh, we think, with women uh, or anyone with complicated grief is there's such a satisfaction in going back to the memory, but the real uh, distinct memory and mementos of the loved one and with the intrusive thoughts that happen, that that brain part of the brain keeps getting activated. But mm. that's one of the few studies that really looks at something that's it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence, obviously, but it, there's a very strong association with what the women were were actually diagnosed with because they do diagnose complicated grief. It's the only one that they do. And, you know, I don't know yeah. if you know, Joe, but in this last DSM-5, they took it out in terms of a, quote, disorder right. as uh, some, a condition to look at in the future. Right, com right. Com complex bereavement. Yeah, I mean to 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 say that somebody who's grieving is disordered is I know never sat well. Oh, with of course me. not. But I, I, you know, I think also the folks that I've worked with sometimes they keep the clothes in the closet. They keep these things, and the the complicated grief is just a way of not coming to terms with what yes. has really happened. Absolutely, they can't accept the death. Right. So one of the things that, that I will say to folks is if anybody tells you to get over it, just tell them uh, to go to hell. Yeah. Said, tell them to go to hell because you'll never get over it, but you must come to terms with it. Right. Because it and, is and, part of who you are. Exactly. And who and what the relationship was like between you and the loved one who died. So right. let's we, we, we've got a few minutes left. As people come to terms with grief. Um, what can they expect? How how can they actually do this? I mean, we know that there's the grief of the loss of a loved one, and and you know we could talk for a long time about whether it's a spouse, whether it's a sibling, whether God forbid it's a child. Right. Um, but how do we come to terms with these things? Well, I think one of the most important ways of doing that is to. As I said before, um, and it sounds so easy, but of course it's not, to be able to accept the grief, not to be overwhelmed and frightened by what you're feeling, um, and to be able to, um, as I mentioned earlier, put your grief into words as much as you can. Um, you know, people don't really want to talk about grief, but given that we're in the pandemic and we've lived this way for a year, um, they're more likely to be able to listen. But um, this is one of the ways. And uh, another way is, I, as I wrote in my op-ed piece, to do something that maybe, um, I call it art, but it can be anything. Um, journal writing to uh, from journal writing or just uh, reading something and you write down a snippet of what you're reading and, and put it into a book. Um, and to be able to realize that the more you think about 
and feel this grief. Think about your loved one. The closer you're getting to basically memorializing them in your memory, and I talk about this uh, as grief, as if you can think of it as lead, beginning to turn, become burnished and turn into gold, into the joy of remembering your loved one with delight. I mean, it's bittersweet, of course, and there are tears, but you can cry um, grieving, but also smiling and remembering the loved one just in so many very different ways. And I don't know if I have time to go into it, uh, but I did write about different kinds of tears. Do I have time? Yeah, please. Please, we have a few minutes. Please, we'd love to hear it. Um, This is, well, there are three kinds of tears. One is just the basic tears that we have, the basal tears that lubricate our eyes. And then another kind is reactive tears when you're cutting up an onion or something and you begin to tear. But then there are emotional tears. And these are the tears that have one of the chemicals in these tears, the emotional tears, is leucine and kephalin, which is related to endorphins. And and this is what makes, usually makes us feel better after we cry. And in the book, I, um, I put in images of, uh, from a book that was called The Topography of Tears by Rose Lynn Fisher, which was a, an amazing book. It was just a book of photo micrographs. She took tears from different, and this was that she mentions strongly, this is not a study, uh, evidence-based study by any means, but she would take tears from different emotions and put them on slides, cover slip them and put them under um, her microscope and then take a photograph of it. And there were different patterns of tears for different emotions. And so I took some of them like tears of grief or tears of um, letting go or tears of attachment. It was really, uh, her book is extraordinary. And so I illustrated some of uh, what I was talking about in that particular chapter. And um, do I have time to just quickly talk about the, the book as a whole? Sure, please. Okay. Well, the book is divided into three different sections plus an, uh, an epilogue. And the first section is grief described. And in that first chapter, I talk about the evolutionary origins of grief. Uh, and don't be surprised because I go back to the dinosaurs. Anybody who reads the book. Anyway, the second um, the second chapter is the forms of grief that we've been talking about. The third is the language of grief and how language for the newly bereaved changes. It's no longer, oh, yes, um, you can call my husband, da-da-da-da-da, or my brother is going to meet you at, at, at this restaurant because the tense now is past tense. My brother... Interesting. I can't meet you. He's, and um, just the different words that are used, like widow or widower, uh, or bereft, um, language itself changes for the bereaved. And then the second part of the book is um, uh, the physiology of grief, which is the grief-stricken brain, one chapter, um, the breaking heart, another chapter, and the hurting, the body hurting, a third chapter. But this third section of the book is the lost loved ones and it, I concentrate on the family in, eight, in 
each chapter is devoted, one is devoted to mother, another to father, to child, to sibling, I think I say mm-hmm. brothers and sisters, and the last one to uh, life's partner, spouse, um, a significant other. And the final, the epilogue, I call uh, Bittersweet Alchemy. And I use that word that is another way of saying how crisis can create growth um, and change. Uh, grief can alchemize into joy. Always, you know, qualifying that with bittersweet. But you do begin to remember the loved one. Um, just chuckling sometimes and thinking, oh, I remember that. Or something mm-hmm. you do, a song that you hear. Anyway, that's the book. And I just I think it's, how, can people, how can people get the book? Oh, um, well, it's everywhere right now. Um, any bookstore, um, Amazon, my website is dorothyphollinger.com, and Hollinger is with one L. Um, Yale Press still has um, has the book. Um, any number of bookstores, I think you can just look up the book. Um, you know, it's in, interesting enough, in Chicago, there's a bookstore called Seminary Co-op, and apparently it's the biggest, the world's largest, as they say, bookstore of university press books. And they did, um, they picked the Anatomy of Grief as one of their to- notable books. Of- That's great. Yeah, it That's was great. nice. So, Doc, let, let me ask you, in, in the, the last couple of minutes, the yeah. I am, as you remember, you know, yeah. we're all doing the best we can. Uh, and it's been interesting because we're, we're talking about the four domains right here, the biological domain, the home, the social, and the IC. Because the domains interconnect, small changes have big effects. What small change can you recommend to our listeners in terms of grief? Oh, in terms of grief? Uh... Well, in general, what small change can you recommend to well, our listeners? Yeah, what I was thinking about was to smile more, to be aware mm-hmm. of trying to smile. Um, that really does change how you're feeling. And another mm-hmm. one, you, as you were talking about words, to be aware of your tone of voice with your words, because research has been done that if, you're, if the tone of voice, the emotion that you're expressing, doesn't match the words that you're saying people listen to the to the tone of voice to the emotions so, so true the other rule you control no one you influence everyone dr hollinger what kind of influence are you hoping to be well i do hope the book will have um an influence on many many people i hope it will help them and help them understand how they don't have to be afraid of grief grief is the price we pay for love it's the other side of love. It's as intense it's, as the love you had for that um, that person who died. That is the most important lesson. You grieve in proportion to love. Yes. Yeah, Folks, yeah, thank you so much for being here tonight. Everybody, we'll see you next week in the Dr. Joe Show. Thank you, Dorothy. Oh, you're welcome.